Welcome to Who Analyzed Roger Rabbit, the podcast that dissects Who Framed Roger Rabbit one minute at a time with special guest Gary K. Wolf. Hey everyone, welcome to Minute Six. I will tell you that I am happy to be here, and I will tell you that I am Chris Blair, and I am here with Annie McMullen. Yes, and I I am positively overjoyed to be here. And we are joined once again by the person who made Roger Rabbit a reality when it instead would have been who framed Sammy the Seagull. (laughs) Give it up for Gary K. Wolf. How does it feel, Gary, to know that you've created something that has become video games, uh, a theme park ride, a theme park land. Yeah, yeah a whole air, like I, I, I wear clothing with my characters on it. I, I have a life-size character that I created in my office. I, um, it's overwhelming to me, quite frankly. Uh, when, I, when I was writing this book, uh, I, I was writing, I was living in California, uh, San Francisco, and I based Toontown on Santa Cruz because that was where all the strange wackadoos doodles live. And so actually in the book, instead of going through a tunnel, you go up over the mountains, you go to Toontown. Um, and I, I expected that it would be, uh, you know, a modest success with the, the fantasy fiction crowd, but I never ever expected the overwhelming uh, acceptance and love for those characters and the fact that those characters uh, are, are far going to outlive me. I mean, th- those characters are, are iconic now. They are iconic characters. I cannot tell you how many pictures I get every week of young women cosplaying Jessica Rabbit. Uh, and and I, I, Jessica Rabbit is the, actually the perfect character for, for women to cosplay because She's a bit buxom, so you don't have to be a waif. You don't have to have a perfect figure. Uh, any size, shape, color, uh, sex. I, I, get, I get male Jessica Rabbits, which I encourage. I love this kind of stuff. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm st- I still get uh, uh, 100 fan letters a week. I, I just got one today from, from a young man who said, I had a dream last night that you died. And I said, I hope you, I hope you're still alive. But uh, I, I had three questions that I want to ask you, and I, I, I realized that if you die before I ask these questions, I'll never get them answered. So here are my questions. And by golly, the kid asked me three questions that nobody has ever asked me before, which is uh, almost amazing. I mean, I, I've done a thousand interviews, and I've been asked every single question in the world. This kid came up with three. Uh, so. Can you can you share any of those questions? Uh, let's see. I, I just I just did that today. Uh, one of them was when I wrote Roger Rabbit, and when it, it became as accepted as it was, was there another book that I thought that that I had written that I thought should have gotten that kind of success more so than Roger Rabbit? And um, there there isn't. I think Roger Rabbit is my masterpiece. But uh, I, my first novel is called Killer Bowl, and it's a book about football uh, played as a blood sport, kind of hunger games for football. And it was my first novel, 1976. Uh, when I go to a science fiction conference, um, 
I am regarded not as the creator of Roger Rabbit, but as the guy who wrote Killer Bolt. It, it's, it, it, and I still get 20 or 30 fan letters a month on Killer Bolt from 1976. So I, I you know, but they're, they're co-equal. I mean, I, I can't say Killer Bolt's better than Roger. Roger's better than Killer Bolt. The other one was, uh, uh, did Disney take advantage of me monetarily? And um, I, I have to say, you know, there's, there's good news and bad news. Uh, uh, the, uh, the good news is uh, that, they, that they pay me well. Uh, the bad news is that they pay me in Disney dollars. Uh, the, the, the good news is that uh, you can spend Disney dollars at Toys R Us. Uh, and the bad news is that Toys R Us went out of business. So it's a good news, bad news. Bad news. Right. It's a real roller coaster ride. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, a real roller coaster kind of ride. And uh, I honestly don't remember what the third question was, but it was something else that uh, nobody had ever asked me before. So, yeah. I, I've got a fun, fun fact. I don't know if uh, you thought of this specifically before, but so you wrote a book that became a Disneyland ride. You were in the company of very few people, the Grimm's brothers, Lewis Carroll, and James Matthew uh, Bernie. Those, uh, that's, that's oh. pretty much it. Oh, so. I, I had no idea. <laughs> uh, if you go to Disneyland and you go to Mickey, it's called Mickey's Toontown, but it's really Roger's Toontown. Uh, I was I was pretty intimately involved in the design and building of that land, and if you go there, you will find that um, there are no there are no right angles. Everything is a curve, and, and there are very few straight lines. Everything is curvy, and there are hidden gags throughout the land. Like it, there's a a manhole cover, and if you stand on the manhole cover just a certain way you will hear of the weasels in the sewers underneath plotting how they're gonna kidnap Jessica, tie her up and throw her in the trunk of their car. Um, if you go into the, into the post office, you'll see mailboxes for all the characters. And if you turn the knobs on those mailboxes, the character will talk to you. Uh, but my favorite is if you go into Minnie's house, okay? Go into Minnie's house. And as you're leaving Minnie's house through the back door, you go by Minnie's Easy Chair, and draped over Minnie's Easy Chair is a magazine called Jessica's Secret, which is a takeoff on Victoria's Secret. And there is a picture of Jessica Rabbit and not in a negligee uh, on the cover of this magazine in Minnie's house, right? But if you go out the door, before you go out and you turn and you look back at Minnie's bookcase, you'll see a copy of my book on the bookcase. That's awesome. And Lewis Carroll doesn't have a copy of his book. <laughs> I've looked. That's right. I actually, uh, I was in uh, Toontown like a year ago. Uh, my boyfriend and I went to Disneyland and we, we did all those things. We, you know, pushed all the buttons and lifted up on the joke uh, barbell that bends and all that yeah. fun stuff. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, that's super fun. Do you, uh, are you a fan of the, uh, the ride there? Oh, I love the ride. Yeah. The, 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 it is the, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, carousel and, uh, uh, carnival and, and just general amusement park fan. I, I, I collect carousel horses and, um, where I, do you keep care? That's like a, that's like a space intensive collection. Well, you, you, you can stack them up like cordwood, you know, oh, okay. on their side. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, minute six, 
um, begins with um, Roger telling Raul that he can give him stars, uh, just drop the refrigerator and I head one more time. And it ends with RK Maroon asking Eddie, how much do you know about show business, Mr. Valiant? <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of ground covered in this one. Um, yeah, big transition scene. Yeah, yeah, we really get, really dive deeper into, start getting into the plot of this movie. Yeah. Um, we know that it's no, not about Baby's Day Out, but um, <laughs> something far more sinister. It's something, yeah, something deeper and more sinister for sure. <laughs> um, so, you know, at the beginning of the scene, Roger is kind of begging for another chance from Raul, uh, Jay Raul, Jay, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah um, from Raul, Raul J. Raul. And, uh, you know, they're walking. Raul J. Raul is walking offset, and Roger chasing <laughs> I'm so him. So, how do you use this full name every time? <laughs> well, it just feels weird, right? Because it's like, what are you talking about? His first name or his last name? Yeah, yeah. You don't know which one. It's you like you talking be... <laughs> about his brother. Who knows? I mean, you could be talking about anyone in his extended family. So, you have to clarify. Mm -hmm. um, but we see a lot of, they pass the backstage, you know, uh, the, the, what do you call that? The rear of the set, the hindquarters of the of the set. Yeah. Um, and there's a bunch of stuff in the background. And one of the first things that uh, I think most people will notice is we see the legs of Mrs. Herman. Yes, we finally get some closure on the Miss Herman situation. Yeah, and um, it it does. It's not going to make you feel better about <laughs> Mrs. Herman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the fact that she is not real, that she exists solely as a pair of legs. She is a man on stilts, uh, standing on, and the stilts are just look like Mrs. Herman calves. So she's like 11 feet tall, <laughs> meaning like is she's baby Herman mother. not the size of a normal baby? Well, and that's why we did this? Like what's going on here? Well, Roger came up to like her legs. Like even when he was standing, yeah. he would come up to like her skirt. So they, I guess yeah. they had to make her a giant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, if Roger is like eight feet tall, I mean, she had to be big. Uh, but the other thing that you see, you can, you can look in the back and see the props and uh, you will see that uh, there's a title card for the cartoon is back there too. And there's a bunch of props kind of scattered around on the floor. And all of that lends a, 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 an aura of, uh, of authenticity. The fact that this is a real world situation and these tunes exist in a real world and these things in cartoons are real. Uh, and, and that's what they're going for. We, we have this uh, great moment of Roger uh, begging Raul, grabbing onto the jacket. This is the first time where you see a cartoon physically interacting with something that belongs to or is a human. When Roger reaches yeah. up and grabs Raul Raul's jacket and holds onto the sleeve and Raul Raul is, is leaning back, pulling, pulling, and pulls the jacket away from Roger. I mean, that's, a, that's stunning. Yeah, it looks so stunning. real. Because it, it, it's seamless, it's effortless, it looks real. And it, it, the whole movie is like that. The whole movie has those kinds of interactions. And, and there are so many of them, and they're so seamless, and they're done so flawlessly, that you accept them. You accept it as real. You accept that Roger Rabbit has reached up and grabbed this jacket and has held on to it. When in, when in reality, it was done with 
with smoke and mirrors and puppeteers and a whole bunch of other stuff that uh, you just don't see, but it, it looks flawless. So Roger is trying to prove to Raul that uh, he can give stars. Um, he hits his head unsuccessfully giving stars. When Roger hits his head, we get we first see various shapes, then we see bells, then we see a cuckoo clock, we see butterflies, and we see a stopwatch, but never stars. Yeah, I do think it's important that that they, you know, prove to us that they've done this 23 times and so far Roger hasn't been able to get stars out of it. Um, and you know, there you go. Yeah, I wonder if that's just a really embarrassing thing as a cartoon character. The fact that you can't produce stars. If you're well, he has like, like projectile dysfunction. <laughs> yeah, he has projectile dysfunction. <laughs> it's very touchy. This is the 40s. They don't have any pills yet that can help give you stars above your head. But while this is happening, lurking in the corner, we encounter a stranger. It introduces the human detective, who is really uh, the star of the movie. And uh, the first time you see him, the first word he says in a derogatory manner is tunes. And that does two things. It names what these things are, because up to this point, they don't have a name. I mean, they're cartoon characters, but now we know that they're tunes. And it also tells you that he doesn't like them at all. That he, you know, there's something going on between him and Toons. And even though they're they're hilarious and and jovial and make people laugh, he doesn't like them. Yeah, that it kind of establishes that they're that they're treated as second class citizens. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that, well, I thought I thought I I wrote down that that just however many seconds it is like two three seconds you know of him you know sort of saying tunes taking a swig swig of his um you know whiskey and then just he makes these sort of like angry mouth smacking moves like it gives you so much right there because to me it wasn't even we already have a little bit of that tunes or second class citizens thing a little bit earlier um and this is it feels very personal like he has a chip on his block exactly. or he has a chip on his shoulder about um about tunes and he's also got probably an alcohol problem like i think those mm. three seconds or whatever they are just tell us so much about eddie yeah, yeah. we learn a lot about him you know the <laughs> fact the fact that he drinks straight from the bottle and then he puts the bottle in a shoulder holster where most private detectives carry a gun. <laughs> carry a bottle. The other interesting thing, if you look, uh, costume department did a great job with Eddie. Um, were you talking about his tie? Yes, <laughs> yeah, and I have a note about his tie also, yeah. Well, I, I have that tie in my closet. Oh, oh that's amazing. I sometimes wear it on formal occasions. But uh, the interest, I also have a, uh, his, his hat. The interesting thing about the hat, it was a Borsalino. And if you know Borsalinos, uh, um, actually they made a movie, French movie called Borsalino with uh, Alan Delon, I think, and uh, uh, somebody else. But um, Borsalino is a very famous hat worn by gangsters in French and Italian movies in the 30s and 40s. And it's still made today. But uh, his hat was a Borsalino, but they altered it to make it kind of comically high. It's higher than a normal hat. And it, it's very subtle. You don't notice it. Uh, 
But when you realize that his hat is higher than a normal hat, you realize, yeah, it's, it's kind of silly because he's a little short guy and he's wearing a hat that's almost as tall as a top hat. Uh, but that was part of the uh, costuming department's efforts to make him look not quite, uh, not quite ridiculous, but maybe just a little silly. And of course that, that, that tie, oh my God, that tie is just horrible. Well, so I, I worked in menswear forever. That was like a, a former career. It was my first career. Uh, I, I bought ties um, for a large, a large chain of department stores. Uh, so I do notice those things. I notice proportions because I was constantly obsessed with the way garments fit and were tailored and all of those things. And so my note about his tie is how uh, the length is like comically wrong um, yeah, and I- that nothing will make you look more sort of like schleppy is the only word that I can th- like, like Donald Trump's ties were comically long. They're way too long. He looks insane uh, with it, you know, the same way George W. Bush's suits were always too baggy. But, you know, to me, that's, it's like such a visual statement that like this guy is a mess, Mm. right? He's wearing a tie. He's technically like doing everything he's supposed to do, but it's, it's not right. He hasn't taken the time to do it right. He pulls his pants up with suspenders and they're too high. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And they're like right below his 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 breastbone. And then his tie is too short. And and it it looks ridiculous. But that was intentional. I mean, they wanted him to look a little, a little odd, a little silly. Yeah. Wow. How how close is Eddie in the movie to bang on to your yeah? (laughs) Oh yeah, bang on. Yeah. Uh well, uh, you know, when we were casting the movie. Um, everybody wanted Harrison Ford, and uh, you know, I saw I saw Eddie as uh, a craggier, taller kind of guy, and everybody wanted Harrison Ford. But um, when he found out the movie was going to take you know three to five years to shoot, he said, "No, I can't, I can't do that." So and everybody wanted Paul Newman, and um, you know, uh, same deal. So. Uh, they went. They went through castings. They looked at a lot of people. They looked at Kurt Russell. They looked at uh, uh, William Peterson. Who I think would have done a pretty good job. And then they found the guy that um, was the perfect Eddie Valiant, and that of course was Eddie Murphy. And you know, they <laughs> brought Eddie Murphy in and made Eddie Murphy Eddie Valiant. And it, you know, it was obvious from the get go this wasn't going to work because um, Eddie Murphy wanted to be funnier than the tunes. So we were rewriting the script to make Eddie Murphy funnier than the tunes. And finally, you know, finally. Uh, uh, Which goes so much not, against Eddie, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So, they, you know, finally, they um, said, no, this isn't going to work. So he gets a million dollars. He's bought out of his contract. And they start looking for, you know, Eddie Million again. And then they finally find the guy who is the perfect Eddie Million, And that's Bill Murray. So they bring in Bill Murray. Bill Murray is an Valiant, but Bill Murray just did not have what it took to convince an audience that this <coughs> that this character was real. I mean, he was you're mm. a talking rabbit, and so he gets a million dollars and he gets put out of his contract, and we keep looking. And uh, <coughs> you know, in the meantime, over on the other side of Hollywood, 
um, uh, Brian De Palma is making The Untouchables. And he desperately wants Bobby De Niro to play Al Capone. But uh, De Niro is making another movie, so he can't. So he brings in Bob Hoskins to play Al Capone. And, you know, a couple of weeks into shooting, all of a sudden De Niro calls up and says, hey, I, I can do it after all. I wrapped early, I can do it. So now Bob Hoskins is out of work. He's got a million dollars and nothing to do. So, you know, they, they brought him in. And when I said, when, when I heard that Bob Hoskins was coming in, <coughs> uh, I said, you know, no way. I, I was a great admirer of his. I, the, the Long Good Friday and uh, Mona Lisa, I'd seen all of his movies. Great, great fan of his. But I said, he's Cockney. You know, he's, he's not just British, he's Cockney British. And He's got this heavy accent, and this was the prototypical L.A. private eye. How's, he, he can't bring that off. But when he came in and read for the part, I mean, standing there on a bare stage, he spoke with a perfect American L.A. accent, and a bare stage, he convinced you that that rabbit was real. Yeah. He was the only one who did that. And toward the end of the filming, um, he maintained that he could see the rabbit. The, the rabbit was real to you. It took nearly six months before the rabbit disappeared. Well, that seems like a real problem for him. <laughs> yeah, and his, he had a ton of kids. He had a ton of kids and a ton of nannies. But one of his sons said, was always teasing him about, oh, is the rabbit here today? <laughs> so the Harvey joke later in the movie kind of came true for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, like, what a what I mean how serendipitous right like I realized it wasn't intentional that he, he wasn't the first choice but to me if you'd use like Harrison Ford or Paul Newman I, I don't see Eddie as being like really traditionally handsome or at least maybe just because I obviously grew up with Bob yeah. Hoskins as him right but but somebody who's that just like sort of strikingly good looking I don't know that they're as believable as sort of the like down on your luck outcast yeah. that is really like a it that's where you draw the parallel between like Eddie and the tunes, right? Like as much as he dislikes them, like he can understand how the world has kind of like beaten them down. Like there's a level of shared experience mm -hmm. there that you're not going to get. I don't know. You don't get that with Harrison Ford. Bob Hoskins changed my perception of what Eddie Valiant is or what he looked like. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bob and God love him. I mean, he, uh, he has changed my perception of what he looks like. And then novels that I'm writing from now on is Bob Hoskins. My, the people say, do you have any regrets? Because, you know, anything about the movie that, that you're disappointed about, and there's only one, there's only one. I'm disappointed by the fact that Bob Hoskins did what I consider to be the most incredible job of acting that I have ever seen a human being do. I mean, he was, he was in a room that was empty all by himself and and acting with characters that weren't there. And he made you believe that those characters were there. And most phenomenal job of acting. When, when he got th thrown out of the club by the gorilla, uh, he was on wires, of course, but when he landed, he broke three ribs. And we thought, oh, geez, you know, we're, we're gonna have to postpone shooting for months. He came into work the next day, all taped up, ready to go. I mean, wow. just, he, he, was, he was talented, he was a trooper. My only regret is that he didn't even get nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah. He should have won that award hands down.
hands down. He really should have. I, I looked into his award history. Um, he's been nominated a couple times for movies, but never won an Academy Award, which never just did. seems like uh, a crime. And should have. He should have. He should have won for. Uh, should have won for Mona Lisa. Mm, yeah. Uh, they definitely should have at least been nominated for Roger Rabbit. Right? Yeah. And he takes his swig, he makes some, you know, faces uh, and body motions that you can tell he's frustrated. And then we, we cut. Oh, I love this transition. I am not familiar enough with uh, the filmmaking process to know what this man's job is, who's in R.K. Maroon's office, who's working the projector. Or I don't even know if it's a projector. It's a machine where they're looking at dailies, it looks like, on mm -hmm. celluloid. They're being real fast and loose with the celluloid itself. It's crumpled up in a pile on the floor. They are taking 0% <laughs> care with this operation. Um, but uh, this man is decked out in the uniform of whatever this man's job is. Oh, yeah, he is. And I'm, I'm going to assume he's an editor. Um, because uh, Maroon looks at it and then he gives him a little bit of instructions, wait for him to get onto his feet I, and then hit him with the boulder. I don't know if tunes can change within the editing process, what the tunes actually do. Um, I think I think he's demanding a reshoot. That's what it feels mm, like to me. It oh. does not feel like it, it's an editing thing. This feels like, a, but you know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So this could possibly be another uh, another director too then yeah or uh, who knows or it's just the guy working the projector <laughs> whatever this machine is i should probably look it up uh i wouldn't even know what to google um but and and he's just you know shouting for the sake of shouting if you look at um rk maroon's office and you look at the walls you will see that there are uh, posters for cartoons starring Roger Rabbit, Baby Herman, uh, that he's got framed, which obviously were maroon cartoons, but of course they were never made. They, those were those were props made for the movie. And in order to get those props, they printed like fifty copies of each, so they could get one for the um, for the for the set. And they gave me the rest, so oh, I, wow. I I have them. They're they're probably the most valuable collectible you'll find on eBay, uh, and uh, it was all done so that it, it you you believed that this guy made cartoons that this was what he did. He had cartoons on his wall, and when you when you look at Eddie, Eddie is fidgeting around with a little statue. The little um, Mickey one? And it's a little Mickey Mouse. You know, it's a little Disney Mickey Mouse. And uh, that was kind of in there, just as old psychic. Yeah. So this I could not figure out. Right next to the Mickey, uh, right next to the Mickey figurine was a picture of RK Maroon with some cartoon cat, which I thought. Huh? Uh, crazy, crazy cat. Crazy cat. Okay. Crazy oh. cat. Yeah, and uh, going back to my word balloons, okay, uh, they desperately wanted to. They, they originally wanted to use word balloons in the movie, but um, it did not work because it was, um, uh, you know, I made it into a silent movie. Cartoon character would put up a word balloon and um, then, you know, the audience would read the word balloon and go on. So they, they had to scrap that. But they wanted to give me an homage. They wanted to put in a word balloon somewhere to give me an homage. So... Uh, at R.K. Maroon's funeral, 
when R.K. Maroon's casket is being carried by uh, Goofy and Clarabelle Clown and, uh, you know, a bunch of cartoon characters and they start laughing and they just can't help it because they start laughing because that's what they do. And um, they, they walk by Crazy Cat. Crazy Cat in, uh, in his cartoons and his comic strips never spoke. He never spoke. Uh, and as the casket walks by him, Crazy Cat puts up a word balloon that says sob. And it turns to tears and then gets his shoulder all wet. It's a, just a beautiful, beautiful scene. Uh, but then as we're doing the movie, uh, rule of thumb is that if a movie is longer than 90 minutes, uh, it's no longer a kid's movie. 90 minutes or under kids movie, 90 minutes and over adult movie. And like I say, we didn't know whether this was going to be an adult movie or a kids movie. So uh, they felt it had to come in closer to 90 minutes rather than two hours. So they cut scenes from the movie. And most of them made sense. Uh, they cut the R.K. Maroon, I mean, the, uh, the Marvin Acme uh, funeral scene. So uh, there went my there went my homage, you know, no, no more uh, no more word below. But that oh, was crazy. Well, that was crazy, cat. The actor who plays R.K. Maroon, Alan Sylvan, uh, Sylvan character actor. Yeah. Mm. Uh, we we see that for the first time that this is 1947. Um, we do get a hint of that during the titles, um, but here it's um, very clear. This is Hollywood. Um, this is oh, yeah they put up a little title card and says hollywood 1947 which right we get very clear about this this is uh the middle of the the golden age of animation uh golden age of animation is pretty much any through the entire time period from when animated first start animation first started uh till it stopped being played in theater so this was all throughout the time where you could see so that's that's what the definition of that period is it's yeah. that like theaters were jam-packed full of animation right yeah theaters were jam-packed with animation which yeah. stopped somewhere in the 60s um, and then obviously resurfaced with space jam too this year <laughs> yes yeah that uh, that just picked it all up again lump that right in back into the <laughs> golden age um, <laughs> so the minute ends, R.K. Maroon, uh, after giving some instructions to his assistant of dropping the boulder on uh, on a character after he stands up, because it'll be funnier, kind of indicating this guy's a real professional, he uh, looks at Eddie and um, asks him what he knows about show business, which is where that minute ends. No business like it. <laughs> no business I know. Um, any other thoughts about the minute? Uh, no, I, I, I think this kind of, the, the, the three minutes that we just talked about really set up the whole movie. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that something's happening, you know, that something's, uh, something's coming. You don't know what you suspect. It's going to be uh, a frame job of Roger Rabbit because that's the title, but you don't know what or why. And it really sets up Roger as the goofball and Eddie as, as the, brass knuckled, hard-boiled detective. And I, when I wrote the book, I saw those two as being two halves of the same character. Uh, Roger is all fun and games, and Eddie Valiant is all uh, hard knocks and, uh, and, and brass knuckles. And the, together, they make one good person. Mm. Yeah, that I've never thought about that before. But yeah, they're like they complement each other so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
they're like a, they're like a kind of a weird comedy duo, except mm. one of them is funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, until until the end, um, which was one of my favorite parts when you get to see like oh like like because when there's pictures of Eddie when he's taking on other cases and you see him kind of being a goofball wearing clown noses, it's like I can't imagine that guy until the end when when you yeah, kind of you, see that kind you, you, you kind of see it yeah. Um, so my MVP for this minute is uh, Bob Hoskins' mouth. He, <laughs> he, the lip smack after the sip he takes, it says so much. It says, you know, maybe it's the first sip of the day because it, it burns a little bit. It, it, or maybe it's just the taste of the word tunes left over in his mouth that he's trying to get out of there. But it, it conveys a lot of emotion. So that is, that's my MVP for minute six is Bob, Bob Hoskins' juicy mouth <laughs> and maybe not the last time bob hoskins juicy mouth will get an mvp award. <laughs> he, might, he might have multiple multiple wins i don't know i don't know it's been a long time but we're not done it's time for everyone's favorite segment friday with nish it's friday with nish Ooh, what a Tell us, Nish, what do you think? Yeah. Hey, Nish. Hey. Uh, right on time. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Welcome back. We are all dying to hear what further pe- parallels you've drawn between uh, this and Baby's Day Out. <laughs> Everything yeah. has changed. I think I saw the right minutes. Everything has <laughs> changed in four, five, six. Yeah, yeah. So uh, movies taken uh, uh, quite a turn. Uh, yeah. So what what are your thoughts about these three minutes? I mean, minute four was continuation of the first three minutes. I don't think anything changed in that uh, particular minute. Um, you know, standard like you know, accidents happening. Uh, baby was not getting the cookie, which uh, made me happy that. <laughs> they didn't make the cookie in the end, and that's a happy ending. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I thought it was uh, it was same thing. Uh, one thing that it reminded me of was uh, they had the ironing board in the wall, mm-hmm. which is what I had in my uh, studio in uh, San Francisco. The first place that I lived in San Francisco, they did have that um, that concept in there. Was yours so, in the kitchen? It was in the kitchen. Yeah. It was a uh, so I, I lived you in a were, place from that era. We actually mentioned this the last time we recorded. Um, we talked about how like no one had seen these things, and I was like, I've seen one of them. I, they've, I've definitely yeah. seen one of these things I, before. I um, wrote the book "Living in San Francisco." I was in San Francisco when I wrote the book, and I actually had an ironing board in my kitchen that folded <laughs> out of the wall. Yeah, um, there you go. They exist. Slice of life. Slice of life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the one that I had, um, it was uh, I had to put first time I used it, I put directly the clothing on top of it, and I forgot that how dirty that thing was stuck in the wall, <laughs> and it, it basically ruined the thing that I was uh, ironing with. And once you put heat on it, it kind of becomes permanent. Oh, cool. Um, so you got to iron a dirt design into your clothes. Yeah, yeah, uh, it was just became dirty, uh, but I still wore it. Um, yeah. 
that was that was the what I took out of the first four minutes of the movie. I made it about my own life. It's great. So the ironing board spoke to you. What what are some thoughts beyond that? Um, when the fridge, the refrigerator was falling down. No, yeah, mm-hmm. in the in the end of that minute, and um, I kind of knew that the baby is going to be safe because from what we established earlier, that <laughs> cannot hurt a baby. From your extensive uh, fandom of babies, uh, yeah. But I was uh, I wasn't sure um, what would be like. That was a little too big of an accident for my taste. When I said accident, <laughs> I was like, "This is a heavy object. Like this is not fun for even the rabbit." Uh, but they did it. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, so it made it made it okay. I mean, Roger survived a lot and was and was fine. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like uh, well, minute five changed everything. There's like a, a regular human being trying to f- get in. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, I thought that guy, whoever, I think he was the director who just steps on, I think better be the director kind of thing. Uh, um, he was weird. Like he was pointing all over the place. Like (laughs) he was giving all kinds of directions like this, this and angry. And I just was like, this is too much even for an animated movie. So you just, you, you didn't like the director's energy. I don't, I I don't, I I think the director is not very good. <laughs> I'm gonna well, tell him that he's gonna he's gonna enjoy this. Yeah, um, wanna, uh, that uh, that is Joel Silver. Yeah, who so produced Die Hard. He, yeah, he he has some credits to his name that would argue. The guy who's playing the director is yeah. a director of Die Hard. Yeah, yeah. The, I believe the producer, the producer of Die Hard. Yeah, yeah, the producer of Die Hard, Lethal Weapon. Um, yeah, I mean, Die Hard is the number one um, Christmas movie. Christmas. <laughs> Uh, not even home alone before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Um, uh, but and before uh, Roger Rabbit. Yeah, Bruce Willis was originally going to play the baby because he had the same hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of similarities. Baby, baby, the actor, the actor baby was kind of a little, uh, had some attitude. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Too much. Like, you know, I think um, I was like, you're still a baby. You know, <laughs> uh, you, you don't think his acting as a baby warranted his attitude? Um, the acting of the baby was pretty good, but I think the attitude was, I think the expression changed a little to adult on the baby's face. And I was like, this was too much of a transition. Um, I wish the baby was. Uh, you're you're offended by baby Herman's range. This is what you're <laughs> baby saying. Herman's range. Like, I think the baby you're... can play. Uh, it seemed like a grown-up baby yeah. acting as a baby, which is. I just like uh, Mish's take on it is like I don't like that grown-up baby. <laughs> yeah, it's a grown-up baby. It's almost as if an adult is a baby-faced adult is playing a baby, and you, you don't think I mean, that should that's happen. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> <It's> exactly... <laughs> Uh, so do you yeah. think babies should only be played by babies? Um, yeah, is that too woke? Hot take, hot take everybody. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little woke. Um, so we get a little bit of a look at, uh, in minute six, we get to see Roger continue on. Uh, what, what were your thoughts there in uh, the six minutes? Uh, minute five to six. Oh, so I think I have a couple of thoughts. I think uh, number one, I think the... Uh, I should comment on the fashion because we talked about it in the first uh, time we met. I think the they showed two human ties and uh, ties, and uh, both of them were very ugly compared to the, <laughs> to the suits. 
I have. Uh, I wrote and, a similar note, so I'm I'm here with you on this. It's, uh, they were no. really bad ties, and uh, I don't think the era that they're showing is they're maybe disrespectful to that time uh, <laughs> with uh, that fashion choice on the ties. Um, I think I also felt like when we first talked, my in my mind this was a Baby's Day Out movie. Uh, animated before Baby's Day Out was released. I am now. I have a feeling that the genre is maybe a little bit mixed with a little bit noir in there, like some a uh, little bit of that, and that's what's going to happen to Roger the Rabbit. So, like he's going to get framed for not being not a good babysitter, but <laughs> <laughs> killing somebody, killing a baby, <laughs> or killing someone. We've gone from baby's day out to killing a baby. <laughs> yeah. Roger, Roger is still getting blamed. That's my, those were the couple of things. I want to know. So now you've, you've figured out that there's a noir, a film noir element yeah. to this, right? Now, now that you've, the, the cat's out of the bag, were there any clues to that in the previous three minutes that you watched? Oh, the one without humans at all. Yeah, like or the, just like the opening credits, for instance, or the opening yeah, title cards. Were interesting. Um, the way they brought uh, the the thing is kind of a little bit more. Uh, you know, I don't know if this was Touchstone or not, but it seemed like uh, uh, some whatever the name of the films is came in more like as if they are producing Seven or something, not like a regular <laughs> animated film. Um, <laughs> Oh, but like the movie I, seven, like the yeah, like movie the, seven, like you know, if the movie, Brad Pitt thriller, was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> actual thriller. <laughs> uh, the I thought that there was a red on the you know the the uh, color with the uh, initial font when it came out, the name of the movie. I thought that was fine. I and I, I mean we could we could now go back and say that it has a little <laughs> bit darker to it, but. Uh, the other thing I noted from the opening was when the faces of the two animated characters come in, I thought they were very creepy. And I thought that was just bad animation that they look creepy. And I don't think that has anything, still don't think anything to do with the movie, but those were my three impressions of the opening. Um, Great. None of them tell me that they are noir, uh, except maybe when the production's name comes up. <laughs> Okay, what do you think the role of, uh, so you get like the human kind of at the end, like saying tunes and then taking a drink. Um, how do you think he's going to fit into all this? The, the, oh, the guy with the, with, with the flask, not a flask, yeah. actual Jack Daniels bottle maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how he's, I think he's, uh, I don't know if he's a, a good guy or a bad guy yet. I think he seems like the, when they cut to him, it seemed like, He's going to be the guy who's going to frame. He's like making note of like, look at this uh, rabbit. He's an idiot. Let's just put it on him. Um, because the rabbit is kind of also trying to hit himself and like trying to be a more of a clown at that point. Uh, but then he says some line after taking his whiskey and it didn't seem villainy enough for me and <laughs> made him more like a, that there could be something, maybe he redeemed himself of the villainy with the way he said that line. Um, so I think, uh, I don't know who the real villain is uh, yet. Um, it seems to me that based on your line of questioning, that the villain has already been shown. <laughs> and I should know. <laughs> well, well, just any-, any Take another look at the bluebird. 
Take it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Cool. It, uh, does anyone else have any other questions for Nish about these minutes? Um, no, just that I really appreciate your uh, yeah. These are some great commentary. Insights. I oh, think it's excellent. Oh, by the way, uh, Nish, this is uh, Gary who wrote the books that the uh, movie is based off of, and produced oh. and produced the movie with Steve Spielberg and Disney. <laughs> Wait, you you it is based on. I'm talking about your work here. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> There are some small clues for those of you. For those of you who can't see uh, what we're looking at right now, uh, we're on a Zoom. But uh, Gary has a giant Roger Rabbit <laughs> stuffed um, plushie next to him. How big is that thing? That thing's quite large. It's life size. Uh, oh, it's life size. Yeah, it's like uh, eight feet tall uh, with, with ears extended. Yes. Okay. I you know Gary's sitting. I presume so. I can. I wasn't sure how tall uh, Roger is, but it's very large, and he's also wearing a Jessica Rabbit shirt so i feel like there were some clues oh, that he we was haven't involved. we haven't met jessica rabbit yet but I, oh, okay sorry <laughs> that's true nish is not nish has not met jessica rabbit yet uh spoilers you gotta know um, who jessica rabbit is. spoiler alert everyone it, the movie came out in 1988 but i don't want to spoil it for anybody um yeah so yes gary uh gary was intimately involved in the yeah, making of gary. this film yeah. Do you have any other predictions about where you think this is going, Nish? I think that's. I, st I still I do want to stand by my original comment that there is a uh, there is a happy ending for uh, Roger the Rabbit uh, here. Um, baby gets hurt a little bit now. I'm okay with that. <laughs> that, guy, that guy, little bit. Like I don't think the animated character should be too hurt, but uh, in my book, the baby's gone down in terms of. Uh, I'm not rooting for the baby. And so those are my <laughs> predictions. Good. All right. Thank you, okay. guys. Cool. Thank you. So that's it for uh, for this week and this minute. Um, can, I, can I give a plug to my website? Oh, yes, please. Uh, yes. Plug all you want, w Gary. www.garywolf.com. Uh, I just uh, put in a whole new section on podcasts where you can listen to me wax eloquent about all kinds of different stuff. And you can buy my books um, and uh, my audio books. I love it. Gary, um, uh, for our listeners, is there any interesting spellings of the Gary or the Wolf part that they should know uh, G about? G-A-R-Y. The, the website is G-A-R-Y-W-O-L-F. Uh, somebody had already taken the, the K, uh, so I, I was not able to get Rude. it. Rude. Oh. Yeah, but I am just uh, plain old 1R Gary and 1O Wolf, so... Uh, <laughs> And no E, got no E. <laughs> Great. So um, I highly recommend the books. Thank you so much, Gary. And my, my pleasure. It's a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed the concept. And uh, uh, I'll be watching to see what you say about the forthcoming minutes, too. Oh, yeah. I can't <laughs> wait. And please feel can't free wait. to come back anytime. All yes, right. Thanks. It was a blast. Thank you so much, Gary. It was nice to meet you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. There we go. Creator of Baby's Day Out, Gary Wolf. <laughs> And that is it for today. We're at Dueling Genre Podcast. Check out all of their podcasts on duelinggenre.com and you can click on the link to support. You can join our Facebook group who analyze Roger Rabbit listeners and participate in all the fun we're having over there. Thanks for listening. And we will be back on Monday for Minute 7 of Who Analyzed Roger Rabbit.